welcome to the Investment Turnaround. In this podcast series, Dr. Mariana Bosazan interviews world-renowned investors, scientists, and other personalities who share their solutions toward the sustainable transformation of our financial systems. Today's guest is Dr. Vesna Vucinic-Neskovic, a Harvard-trained, highly distinguished professor of anthropology at the University of Belgrade. She's a former chair of the World Council of Anthropological Association, WCAA, and a fellow in the World Academy of Arts and Sciences, WAAS. Vesna, it's a great pleasure to have you. Thank you for being here and welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Mariana. It's great, great pleasure also to be joining your podcast project, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. Well, um, it's both ways, and so you are just a wonderful woman. This is why I asked you to uh, to be on the podcast. You're a wife, a mother of two, a world-renowned anthropologist, in short, a true powerhouse. And uh, so what happened in your life that put you on this path? Well, I suppose it's a long story, like with everyone else, but uh, I would like to say that it's primarily the emotional, intellectual support of my family, which is my father and mother and my grandparents and uh, my husband and my son and daughter. Uh, especially, I think it's important to stress the role model of my father, who was a heart surgeon and professor uh, of medicine at medical Belgrade Medical School, Uh, who, among other things, showed me uh, what it means to care about the people who suffer. Uh, one of the most extreme examples of such caring was when he went to Africa to serve for the International Red Cross in the civil war between Nigeria and Biafra in 1969, when he was placed in front of the fire squad and for a part of the second escaped losing his life. Of course, this was uh, already... Uh, quite a few months after he had helped both sides, the Nigerian people and the Biafran people. And uh, um, the group of the Red Cross found themselves in this strange position of the mutual fighting when there was loss of understanding of who was doing what and when this uh, situation occurred. So I was happy to have my father um, with us, with a family, Uh, for quite a number of decades after that incident. Then also, I would say that the important thing for me was my admira admiration for and friendship with people with visionary ideas who were my close collaborators in the World Anthropological Associations, who also became my friends. In the end, I think I should say that growing up in relaxed socialism and being able to compare um, from within capitalism and socialism was also an important point in my growing up and um, realizing what is important and how things differ in different parts of the world where the outside circumstances uh, are determining our lives to uh, a large extent. Yes, of course, especially like you, I grew up in um, not a relaxed <laughs> socialism actually <laughs> in Romania. But uh, to have now um, both worlds and uh, the opportunity and the freedom to compare and influence uh, the new society is a great gift. So, um, so obviously, the road to exterior transformation, which is what you're currently doing, main, being a force for good in the world, comes from within. So what happened specifically to you that um, led to becoming you know, this force of good in the world? Like what put you in service uh, service of humanity? Because it's not just you know you're a professor and teaching at the local university. You're so much out there in the world and internationally active. Well, um, yes. Well, uh, thank you for these compliments. First of all, I'm not sure that I'm I have been serving to such a high extent. I'm try, I, I was trying to and am trying to to do something. Uh, let's say a little bit above what uh, the usual uh, profession of being an anthropologist prescribes. And this is usually, you know, research, uh, especially in the field, among the people who are participants in the culture and the society, and also um, transferring the knowledge of the discipline and my own uh, experience in the discipline to the younger generations. Uh, 
Um, so this engagement, uh, I would say, in world anthropological associations uh, is something that is a little bit outside this, this um, usual uh, work in the field. And I must say, basically, I, I found myself in it probably with this family uh, background that I had and, and different experiences with living, uh, on one hand, in former Yugoslavia, uh, now Serbia, then also spending uh, some four years altogether in the United States, but from basically early age, because I was living with my far relatives who were already Americans to have some experience going to school, elementary school, high school, and then for the, my, my master's degree at Harvard. Uh, so, uh, I, and, and there I encountered uh, different, you know, uh, cultures uh, in the United States, uh, starting from different religious cultures, because my uh, distant relatives, uh, from being earlier on um, Christian Orthodox, turned into different uh, churches uh, of the Protestant, uh, let's say, affiliation. So basically, I learned a lot from them and not accepting the changes in my uh, traditional background. Uh, cultural and so on. Uh, so uh, all these things influenced me. But then, when when I uh, encountered the world anthropo uh, anthropology movement, which was growing, uh, let's say from about um, a decade and a half or somewhat more ago, starting from Brazil uh, and then incorporating anthropologists from all around the world. Uh, I, I ran into this group actually in 2009 at the uh, World Congress of the International Union for Anthropological and Ethnological Sciences, which was taking place in Kunming in China. Uh, I, I looked at the uh, program and I saw, of course, some um, names that, that I knew from before, like uh, Professor Seth Law who is my colleague from CUNY, from New York, a very well-known urban anthropologist, but also an engaged anthropologist. The other people I, I did not recognize by their name. Uh, and so I said, ha, huh, this is something interesting. They want to deal with uh, world anthropology and uh, looking at you know, how we are different and how we want to share our knowledge from, I don't know, Brazil, from Australia, from India, from South Africa, uh, from different parts of Europe and so on, uh, and to see how how actually uh, similar we are in looking for better ways of, let's say, using our knowledge from the field. Because anthropology is so specific, uh, humanistic and social science, in that it brings the knowledge from the people's hearts, from their everyday life, from their small groups, in which they live, right? Like starting from the family, uh, from um, the interest groups, from uh, sport clubs, from um, uh, different, uh, you know, voluntary organizations up to different institutions. And anthropology looks at informal aspects of life. Um, so it brings out uh, very rich knowledge about which other sciences and other professions cannot reach for. And uh, so we we wanted uh, this group, and then when I joined them, I, I felt this, I guess, comradeship. <laughs> and that's why I I liked um, how they how they look at things and what they want to do with anthropology. Uh, so I joined the group uh, as a representative of the International Association for Southeast European Anthropology where I was for a long time active, for like 10 years. I was there in the executive board. I was also the president of this association. And then as such, I joined the World Council as a delegate. Then I, I went into the, uh, into the organizing committee for four years. And then I was also serving as a chair for two years from 2014 to 16. And so uh, we did a lot of things that as I say, uh, was trying to bring our knowledge uh, and share our knowledge among ourselves, among our associations, uh, also to try to influence the real world. Like when some things were happening that were, that were, uh, let's say, 
um, detrimental to some marginalized groups in some societies, uh, we were writing support letters to the governments and so on. Let me give you an example uh, with the Guarani uh, Indians in Brazil. Uh, this large group of Indians was um, actually in danger of being removed from their land uh, with the uh, large infrastructure projects that started some years ago uh, in Brazil on the rivers and building the dams uh, and electric power um, infrastructure. Uh, so uh, basically they were uh, the Indians themselves were uh, organizing themselves to influence the government, but then also our colleagues from ABBA, this is the Anthropological Association of Brazil, which is very large and very influential and very activist-oriented, especially to help the, the Indian population, the indigenous population, they were writing to the government of Brazil and uh, uh, asking for support uh, of the Indians uh, in protecting them from, from the you know, detrimental um, effects of, of this large uh, project, which government was obviously allowing. Um, and then they, we were asked, the World Council was asked to also write a letter to the president of uh, the state of Brazil uh, in that same support. Uh, we had other, other um, similar, let's say, uh, support projects uh, in, in that regard, but also with the discipline. For example, in some uh, states, uh, some um, European states among others, uh, the discipline of anthropology is undermined. It is, uh, uh, the government is trying to, for example, classify it under sociology or under some kind of a, a group of uh, social sciences, which means less financial support, less recognition for the discipline in every way. And so we were writing also letters to these governments um, to and also to other organizations to uh, support our colleagues in fighting for the status of anthropology. Um, so I'm, I'm now going, you know, far, far from maybe your initial question, but these are the things we are doing, and this is where I think uh, our world organizations are uh, being active uh, to to do something else than just, you know, pure um, pure scientific work uh, and academic work. Yeah, pure segregated. We're talking here about. Uh... Um, integrating and inter um, integrating various disciplines, and uh, because transformation, the way we need it today, has to bring various disciplines, and this is actually tightly connected to the goal of this uh, podcast, which is supposed to entice investors, business people, entrepreneurs to use capital to change the world. And so this is very pertinent. To our conversation today because transformation requires uh, capital of course and you already mentioned uh, political will, uh, will and regulations but also strategy and implementation so this brings us to to our target audience that is basically investors entrepreneurs and business people mm -hmm. and uh, so my question to you is how can your work influence inform and uh and guide investors and entrepreneurs to use the capital for, as you mentioned already, a social transformation to implement the UN SDGs and all of that within the uh, boundaries of our planet, because we also have pl climate change and, and so on. So from your perspective, how can your work, what is your advice to investors, entrepreneurs um, on how to create abundance through an entrepreneurial culture within the anthropological context that you're actually studying? Yes, yes, that's a nicely, uh, nicely put question. I'm not sure how well I can answer it, but I'll try. Um, yes, well, um, the, the question, the basic question or the starting question is, uh, can, can entrepreneurs themselves uh, with uh, even uh, trying to change their initial mindset, which by definition is the one to uh, create, let's say, capital and to invest it further on, um, can really um, uh, essentially help in changing the overall 
predominant system uh, that is at work today on our earth. Um, I, and you call it you call a new a new, uh, new liberal capitalism, which is not yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, you know, when we look around the world, uh, I think we can uh, say. Uh, even objectively, that neoliberal capitalism is the predominant um, system. Now, of course, it's not the only one. And in fact, this is now the interesting uh, part of uh, uh, analyzing our world today, that, that, that uh, the other system that is showing, uh, um, well, growth and uh, on one hand, economic growth, uh, not only of the capital and of the state, but of the people living in it, uh, is the system of socialism with um, market elements, which is primarily characteristic of China, uh, but partially also in other some other um, countries. Uh, so basically, I think uh, we should we should start from looking at what are the benefits i mean each each national system because we still uh, basically uh, function within national political and economic systems right um we should try to be um self-critical turn around ourselves and recognize um how our system um influences the life what it produces for the life of the people who uh, are within it and also how it influences the people surrounding our countries in the nearby neighborhood and around the world. Um, and then that asks for, of course, as we said, multidisciplinarity, but also uh, a kind of trans-ideological stance. You know, because in analyzing, even in science, which is trying to be objective, um, we do always bring with ourselves, especially this is visible in social and human sciences, despite what people say, um, we bring with ourselves uh, our um, political and ideological stances, among other things. And this, to quite a, a large extent, influences the, the ways we analyze the phenomenon processes and how we synthesize our and make conclusions and interpret our scientific results. Often they are slanted in the sense that, uh, you know, the scientists, uh, let's say, working uh, and being employed in the Western uh, context, be it the United States, the you know, European Union, whatever, uh, do approach the whole uh, the whole subject of their analysis and also all these other parts of the process, in, including the interpretation, uh, with, with this uh, baggage on their backs, you know, the ideological and political. And so this uh, influences their conclusion in the sense that they're not, that, that they're slanted and critical of the other kinds of systems where they do, for example, their field work, you know. Um, for example, it's very hard for the... Uh, um, researchers from from the West to uh, be objective and not ideological about what's going on. Again, I'm mentioning China because China is now, you know, a, a big topic, of course, uh, because of its, its economic growth, because of its different of the system, because it has a one party system, which cannot be accepted as democratic from uh, the viewpoint of many others. And so the, the results are slanted. Um, this is just one example. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go into details, but uh, we should be a little bit less, you know, ideological and political about such kind of um, analysis. Now, this also is connected to, to how we can look at investment and so on, partially. On the other hand, there is this part which you, I think with your podcast, uh, a podcast insist on, and which is the, uh, the inner transformation. Uh, each of us, um, okay, I'm a scientist, I'm not an investor, but I also invest my energy, my time, my knowledge into trying to make the world better. Uh, so I'm in there as well, but okay. Now and this is, this is exactly my definition of, of an investor. Everyone is an investor. Yeah, it's, it's true. Right. Not just no. the ones that use money because they, you know, money is just a means of exchange. Yes. Right. It's nothing else. It's not more important than knowledge. <laughs> right, right. 
there are different kinds of investments. Of course, the, the investors in this narrower sense of the word do also need knowledge, but we also uh, we all have a certain framework of thinking and and neoliberal capitalism brings out unfortunately uh it forces uh, so many people around the world to think about the money uh, the capital in this narrow sense of the word the financial capital the more you have the more uh, the better you are off you know the so your social status will be better you will be able to to uh be let's say more self-confident uh around your colleagues about your around your family around your friends and so on these things is the and, trap uh, is the trap Yes, it's the trap. But uh, to 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 go back uh, one step, uh, yeah, backwards into uh, back to your question, um, where where how how to invest, uh, let's say, real capital um, in in the sense where, uh, as you said, uh, things would be better for everyone. That everyone, uh, I mean, the poor people primarily, the presently poor people, uh, who who make up the very large uh, population, especially in parts of the world like uh, Africa, parts of Asia and Latin America. But, you know, you have poor people in Europe as well. Many in of Germany. Them. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, uh, you know, how to make this distribution better? Uh, how, how the people who have money, who have lots of money, uh, should change their way of thinking and try to invest in a more conscious way. Now, of course, the, the trap is also that the whole system, the whole neoliberal system is such that it doesn't even allow them to do that. It's not, it's not easy. They can, you know, individuals cannot change the system directly. Now, if, if all these uh, things come together, like individual transformation in the sense of trying to think differently than educational transformation. We have to do it through education, starting from kindergarten uh, up to, you know, university, doctoral level and postdoctoral level and so on, life, lifelong education. Uh, then also in changing institutions and the system, then uh, if we do all that, it will take time. You know, it will take time to, to, to make all these transformations. Now, of course, the question that we raised uh, actually at the, at the meeting in Dubrovnik, where the, the World Academy of Art and Science and the uh, Club of Rome met, right, to discuss uh, basically this question of what is for now called the new uh, emerging of the new civilization and how we should change the world. Uh, the, the question was posed in one of the panels where I participated, you know, can we do the transformation with all these uh, elements uh, integrated uh, quickly enough so that the, the world does not fall apart in both the socio-political and economic um, way, but also in ecological which we know is also a, a very uh, problematic and, and, and things are changing in a negative way so quickly. So, um, so yes, it's a very complex question and I'm not, so sh I'm not sure whether uh, the big enough changes can be done in a short enough period to, to, to be able to uh, swim out of these problems that we have today um, and in a radical enough way. You know, because there is many ideas about trying to save, to correct neoliberal capitalism. This is probably possible, but really large effort is needed in this direction. And one of the concepts that should be that should be uh, present there is the one of conscious, maybe of conscious capital. You know, which is one of the concepts that's now being developed, and and that can be also used in the context of the SDGs of the Sustainable Development Goals, which have been defined by the United Nations. And this is a good thing because this is a this should be a global project, which where everyone should uh, come in, and among um, among others, the anthropologists, because we basically deal with all these questions that are mentioned there as problems. You know poverty, unequal uh, rights to education, uh, gender rights, um, uh, uh, problems about uh, water, um, soil, uh, marine life, uh, uh, cities, sustainable cities. All these things are things that we, we deal with and we can offer our uh, very concrete knowledge about it. To, to inform the decision makers and to, to inform all these world organizations that are trying to do something. 
Right. Yeah. So I am. Um, my work is very close, down to earth, very close to the application. Mm-hmm. And you have also been doing some work on entrepreneurial culture. So can we now go back a little bit to to the implementation uh, away from the, the theory in general? Because I believe that abundance can be created, you know, through every single uh, individual on the ground. You know, a person who has decided to start a bakery around the corner and goes to its, you know, his or her grandparents and asks them for some money to to open a shop and um, yeah, put a hole yeah. in the wall and so can you share with us uh, from your perspective uh, you know what is how do you see in your country in your region the entrepreneurial culture being developed and how um, you have also worked on um, enticing and attracting business people to come back to uh, repatriate them to come back to Serbia and help um, on the on the local Um, environment. Can you share with us a little bit on your insights on the entrepreneurial culture, the investment culture, and um, how can investors become interested, people who are listening to this podcast, and um, and come in, in your region and invest and support the development? Mm-hmm. Yes, I have had some experience with that, as you as you mentioned. Uh, I can't say I'm really an expert on that, but uh, let yeah, let me share a few a few thoughts about uh, this. Basically, I was involved in the project, which was the, the European uh, Commission project uh, a few years back, on uh, that integrated that in, uh, involved eight countries, some from the European Union and some some outside of it, or just those that just. Uh, um recently uh, joined it uh, one of uh, two of those were serbia and montenegro and i was um, heading the team for re- research uh, team for for these two countries and um, uh, yes uh, it was a wider project it looked at how the um, western ideas economic ideas uh, were penetrating in these different countries in uh, three different areas of um, activity let's say one was entrepreneurship the other one was the influence in large uh, ministerial projects where the eu was um, investing and let's say helping uh, the national projects uh, for example in agriculture and the third area was uh, how the economic ideas were penetrating uh, research institutions and universities the content of, let's say, um, courses and so on. So I tied myself in my own research also uh, in this entrepreneurial culture, which had to do with repa- uh, repatriate inter- uh, business initiatives. Uh, and there was a, I took a suitcase, uh, sorry, uh, uh, a case study of a, um, a Serbian uh, businessman who was actually uh, Um, working in the European Union in international companies for quite some years, about 10 years, and then decided to come back. And uh, after working for a while in Coca-Cola, he decided to set up his own small uh, think tank, actually, uh, entrepreneurial firm. And one of uh, the first uh, project that he made was the so-called Hausmeister, um, to be a small uh, home repairs company. But uh, what uh, what this whole uh, project, which actually ended up very successful, um, um, instructed us upon, uh, I, I followed it for a, a few years, um, was that basically this project would have not worked out uh, only on his ideas and his experience from working in the West. Uh, what it needed was the input from the inside from the local um, experience uh, of of local engineers managers and so on serbian that is uh, who brought in their knowledge of the organizational culture um, from the serbian let's say in this case uh, firms and which was which was incorporated Uh, into the ideas, let's say, more theoretical, abstract ideas and principal ideas and values of this um, repatriate entrepreneur. Uh, So only in this integration, uh, the company flourished. Uh, Actually, from from a company uh, working small home repairs, it became a company actually dealing with uh, very large 
projects related to maintenance uh, um, of different kind of infrastructure in large international firms, embassies and so on in Belgrade, whole of Serbia and now in the whole region of uh, southeastern Europe. Uh, so uh, basically uh, these work cultures can show us and organizational or business cultures can, uh, when looked at from within, can show us uh, how, what is really needed, you know, to make a successful uh, company. Uh, now, of course, uh, the local entrepreneurs often uh, start doing uh, or making up companies without too much knowledge, actually uh, even professional knowledge, but also caring about the cultures of their partners, let's say, or their uh, clients in the widest sense of the word. So uh, they're not, they don't end up being successful. On the other hand, there are um, outside investors who come in and uh, who I'm sure sometimes do care about these cultural things and things that have to consider um, from everyday culture, but also from business culture when they set up their company, let's say in Serbia again. Um, and some some just don't and i think that they should they should uh, really take care of these things and deal with them uh starting from little you know from little elements of this uh, culture like um uh do you drink coffee with your uh with your uh, employees uh in the early morning uh and and chat about the previous days business and um, um political news um and what you need to do for the, for the day uh, or you don't do that, or uh, do you, you know, uh, do you uh, come at work, or do they come at work um, at eight o'clock or nine o'clock sharp, or or it's better for them to to have some uh, somewhat more flexible working time, uh, how they dress at work, how they approach their uh, clients, how to do, how they do many many different things that vary from one culture to the other, so. You know, I think these are the things that, um, yeah, are, are, are interesting to, to note and where anthropology has insights. Uh, my colleagues from different parts of the world also do that in, in very different countries. Yeah, which is basically the foundation of uh, the aqua model, the all quadrants, all lines that we're using. That's where the name um Aqua comes from. It's uh -huh. basically into you know going beyond for money only. A focus in investing toward de-risking through the integration of cultural um, and environmental and social components, in mm -hmm. addition to the personal development. So mm -hmm. look at the people, take the people as people, as uh, real people, integrated human beings. Yes, in a certain environment, have a certain culture that is um, precious to them and use that as the foundation for building a successful business because successful business doesn't mean money only. It never does. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, including people uh, and the planet. And this is comes down basically you're, uh, to, uh, to what we stand for. Our motto is the parity, the equality of people, planet and profit with passion and purpose. These are the six mm -hmm. P's that are for us so important because if you focus on money only, then you may get it, but you can't drink, eat or breathe money at the end of the day. If you ruin your environment, your marriage, your culture, your, uh, you know, the water poisoned and so on. So you're basically, and this is the reason why I invited you on the podcast, because as an anthropologist, you have a totally different lens at looking at the world as the foundation for economic success. And so people better listen to what you have to say because it's ultimately it's helping them become even financially more successful because all the factors are important, you know, to the overall success. So thank you for that. I really, really appreciate it. So mindset change is a, is a key factor. And uh, even if people come in with, let's say, uh, with the uh, primary intention to make more money, they will be transformed through the culture in which they built their businesses, which is basically what you just said through the case study that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, yeah. So that's that's the key, uh, in my view, also uh, to any transformation 
uh, you know, as we look in the future, and this is how we met in Dubrovnik based on, on the new civilization initiative between our two organizations. This is the foundation of, of success. So in... Um, in you, you are also a famous author, and you've published several books. One um, is the spatial behavior in Dubrovnik, uh, in which you talk again about the um, the preservation and development of uh, of culture. Uh, can you tell us? And uh, the other book was also that I, I was uh, brought my attention to was Christmas celebration in the uh, Bay of Kotor, um, and in, in there you talk about spirituality. Can you uh, put these two factors together in a certain context? Because I believe that these aspects are truly at the foundation of uh, future abundance for us all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Well, um, yeah, let me say a few things about these uh, books um, in the context of, of, of our conversation now. Um, and how I, from now this perspective, uh, look at, at these uh, books. Um, the Spatial Behavior in Dubrovnik, yes. Well, um, I was interested to see how um, the landscape, the man-made uh urban planning landscape influences the everyday life of the people how they choose their places where they go for everyday shopping of food how they choose their places where they go or uh, to to uh feel spiritual that is to the churches uh, how they uh, choose places where they go for walks or uh have fun with their friends with their family with their neighbors uh and so on. So uh, one of the interesting, um, one of the interesting informal institutions that I uncovered as very important for uh, the spirit of the city, for preserving the um, uh, this community uh, sense of living together in the old town of Dubrovnik, I found in the so-called Corzo. Uh, of course, locally it's called Jir. Ichujir uh, means to go into the promenade, to, to participate in the in the daily promenade, which um, mostly happens in the evening hours uh, in Dubrovnik in uh, the main pedestrian street known as Stradun or Plaza. And uh, basically, it turned out that this is a very uh, important. Uh, informal institution, where which reflects the social stratification of the whole city, and also which brings together the people to to exchange news, to present themselves in public space, but also for the young people, most importantly, uh, to observe each other, to get to know each other from uh, first from distance, and then also establish some closer, friendly, or even romantic relationships, and. Um, I uncovered that actually the healthy promenade, the, the existence of the promenade is actually the guarantee of a healthy, uh, small-sized or medium-sized city. Uh, I, I, I accentuate this size because when the city becomes overly large, then you, you don't really have a real promenade because then the people don't know each other directly or indirectly. They, they lose sense of the, you know, of the community and knowing each other in that uh, in that uh, social direct way, uh, but um, I'm say, uh, I'm saying this also because of the transformation and the growth of many cities around the world. We, we must remember that we have now the Earth has become the urban society. We have more than 51 percent of the world population that lives in uh, settlements that are categorized as cities. And so we have to care about the sustainability and the future of, the, of our cities. And uh, in that sense, the promenade, its existence, is a guarantee that there is something good going on, that there is enough people there, uh, that the, the, the demographic situation is good, that the social situation is good, that the economic situation is good in the city. Uh, and uh, because uh, if you take an opposite example where there, there, such a thing does not exist, the promenade has vanished, for example, which was actually <clears throat> characteristic of most of the European cities, especially in the first half, well, all through the 20th century, even earlier, of course, but especially characteristic for the southern European part where, you know, you have good weather, you have uh, a lot of 
days during the, the year where people can spend their time outside in open public space. And uh, uh, as I said, there are examples where the, the promenade has disappeared uh, due to different circumstances, which are telling, again, of the negative uh, sides of the developments of the city. One of the interesting things is, for example, that um, economic development that is tied to tourism and to high value of, uh, of um, uh, houses or apartments in a city has negative effect on the on the on the demography of the city and of the um, all the other aspects of, of the life of the city which the promenade reflects let's say just dubrovnik we were there a few months ago right it's a beautiful city it's one of the jewels of, of world tourism and so on well that city has lost its promenade it has lost its, its jeer when i did the study my phd study there in 1990 1991 uh, this was already the time when the promenade was disappearing from the main street it moved into the new uh, part of dubrovnik um, but now, you know, okay, these were also turbulent times, there was civil war and so on, but now there is peace and, you know, uh, stabilization and so on. Um, basically, the, the promenade has not come back to the city. Uh, one of the important factors is that um, the many people who own their apartments and houses in the old town have sold them out to the foreigners. Uh, because they could gain a lot of money from that, they moved out into the newer parts of Dubrovnik. And so these um, spaces are used for living only for about a month a year. So there is no people. The old city has been depopulated. So there is no, um, you know, positive, um, let's say, circumstance that brings people into the old town for this traditional promenade which makes the people uh, makes the city lively so the only promenade let's say under quotes is is the pseudo promenade that is that is practiced by the tourists by thousands of tourists that that occupy the city which mostly come on the big uh, ships tourist ships who stay there for a day or for half a day run through the city uh, use the, the promenade space in a completely different touristy commercialized way um, that is, is in contrast with the traditional ways of, you know, kind of, uh, uh, let's say, walking the city uh, uh, in a serene uh, rhythm and way, uh, a respectful way. Uh, all that is gone. And so the city, the old city is becoming basically uh, free, free of such uh, activities which make it a city, which make it beautiful, lively, and so on. You, you know, you, you can't have a city beautiful only with its old walls. You have to preserve its heart, and this is the life in it. Okay, this is one, one example, but such things are happening in other places. Of course, in some other places uh, with old uh, town cores, there is still enough population living in it, you know, so that when the so that the people in the summer mix with tourists, but then they have their city uh, on their own during the non-touristy season. So this is one example of of, of uh, how you know what can happen to, to to a beautiful city, and how we should actually worry about. Uh, be careful. So that means decision makers, urban planners, economic planners, spatial planners, and and the government uh, of the whole state uh, should should take care of such places. Now the spiritual part, where you uh, where you wanted me to comment, uh, the spiritual uh, theme, um, which I which I actually uh, dealt with in my other book on Christmas celebration in the Bay of Kotor, uh, which was actually devoted to the um, public burning of eulogs, which we called badnyak in uh, in in Serbia and Montenegro. Um, in the time of post-socialism, uh, dealt with with the need of the people and uh, the, the support of the Christian Orthodox Church, in that sense, for coming together again in open public spaces, and basically coming back to their spiritual life, you can say, you know, because during socialism, as you know, um, uh, the 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 church, the going to church, the spiritual life, all itself, the. Um, the practice of religious holidays uh, 
in the family, but especially in public place, was was let's say uh, prohibited or at least not encouraged. In Serbia, it was a little bit less so than, for example, in Romania, I would say, or Soviet Union or China and so on. Uh, but it was also kind of um, pressured against. Uh, people were not doing all these things. So with Christmas as the most favored, let's say, among the people holiday, uh, people started to enjoy coming uh, again into the public space near the churches or besides the churches or in um, the actually squares, public squares, especially where the church is situated there. And uh, they would be participating in the this very uh, attractive, let's say, um, event of public burning of these large, usually oak, or olive branches, which are specially decorated or left as as such, and brought ritually into the onto the open hearth, uh, where a small ritual is performed by the priest and by the local priest and the uh, members of the board. But then, with all these people from the community surrounding uh, the open fire, and uh, you know, then congratulating each other uh, the Christmas Eve, because all this happens on Christmas Eve, and then going back to their homes and enjoying their holiday. So this is telling of the need of the people to to uh, have uh, some kind of belief, which is which is aimed towards, again, their own, under, own uh, feeling of religiousness, right? Um, however, they feel it inside, uh, and the study showed that this is a, a very important uh, element of, of people's life and prosperity. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's health in general. It's like this is what people are about. It's just beautiful, you know, to give the space where they can um, uh, get together and to connect through their own spirituality. Yeah. Uh, Beautiful. So you've been very generous with your time. Um, I have uh, three more questions before we come to an end. So uh, w number one is what are three specific and most treasured pieces of advice that you would like to give to our audience? Uh, okay. <laughs> well, okay. Let me let me put it very shortly. Uh, first of all, uh, put your family in the first place. Then. Be persistent in finding the work that brings you the most joy because the others, everyone around you will then profit from this. And then the third is do not do to others what you would not like done to yourself. Yeah, okay. that's 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 the Christian. Uh, yeah, actually, it's not it's all, in all religious. That's exactly. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. Wonderful. And number two, uh, where can people go and learn more about your work, those who want to contact you because you're such a beautiful um, speaker and uh, developed human being? Where can people go and learn? What is your website? Do you have a website? Do you tweet? What is your ID? Well, yeah, see, I'm not very organized about presenting myself on the Internet in, in, you know, in, a, in a kind of um, concentrated way. So basically, information about what I do is spread all around internet, um, different websites. I don't have my own website. Uh, there is the website of my uh, institution where I work, which is the School of uh, Philosophy, University of Belgrade. Uh, and there is, of course, uh, more information on the, on the Serbian part of the website, but also uh, there is some uh, um, information on the English, English part uh, under my name. Uh, and um, well, yes, I think maybe if you if if you just uh, yes on Academia Edu uh, website there is some pieces of my uh, published work, and um, I guess if one just uh, types in my name, uh, then different things will appear. So Do you have a Twitter account? No. No, I don't don't. no, I have an account, but I don't use it. I don't put any information about myself there. <laughs> I don't have time for that. <laughs> I understand. Last question. How do you want to be remembered? And what kind of impact do you want to have in the world? Wow, that's a, a hard question. Huh. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, um, well, I... 
I would like some of my ideas and stances about anthropology and about um, some general values uh, about the world to be uh, kind of taken upon by my students and by my children. These are the young generations which are smarter than us. I think every new generation is smarter. I sometimes get very surprised by how smart they are. And also kind of they, they know how to bring practicality with, uh, with, with, with good values and uh, hard work and interesting ideas. I'm really surprised by how smart they are, and, but they need support. They, they need not to be lost somewhere out there you know um they need our in their life further in their life yes we should we should all support them and give them the chance to be uh, to to kind of prosper uh, uh quickly you know there is this in our educational system i would say also at work uh in many places there is this conservative approach uh, and stance to young people like you know, they shouldn't hurry. They should learn from us, but in a very slow way. Uh, you know, we should keep our position as long as possible, and there is always time for them. <laughs> you know, this is this is not the right approach. So I don't know how people will remember me. Probably in different ways, and I don't have some big vision about myself in that sense. So I often do things, you know, not in a, in an irrational way. <laughs> so I'm not very <laughs> rational about my 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 path, uh, in uh, altogether. So this is all I think I can say about it. <laughs> well, that's wonderful. Thank you, Vesna. It's been a, a great honor and a privilege, and I had so much fun to to spend time with you. Thank you yes. for your wisdom. Yeah, the, yeah, it's it's on my side as well. It was really pleasurable and. Uh, yeah, being able to, to you know, uh, have a chance to get out of my, um, uh, let's say, more narrowly defined, uh, well, professional uh, thinking and acting and, and, yeah, share with you all different kinds of experiences and thoughts. So, yeah, thank you for asking me for, for this um, interview. <laughs> it's my pleasure. Thank you. For more info on Dr. Neshkovich, visit the link in the show notes. For more on Dr. Bosazan and the investment turnaround, visit investment-turnaround.com.